My brothers and sisters, in today's readings, we see what I would characterize as, as a sort of a tension between these two different things, between, on the one hand, justice, and on the other hand, God's love, and closely associated with that, mercy. So you've got justice, and you've got love. And there's a little bit of a tension between the two. And there's a question that's put before us, what is our fundamental operative framework within which we process the world, engage others, live our lives? Is it justice only, or is it justice tempered with mercy? Justice that is contextualized and grounded by love. And I'd like to suggest to us this morning that really it's the latter option, that it's got to be justice, contextualized and grounded by love, that is the controlling force for us as Christians at every level, interpersonal level, but also a broader social and political level as well. We see in Ezekiel a mindset that wants to operate just according to justice, just according to righteousness. And uh, it's a mindset that wants to put people in a box. They've done something bad, you know, they've got, they got bad habits, and uh, the mindset says, you're never going to change. You're just a bad person. That's what you are. That's who you are. And I'm going to always relate to you that way. And you're basically, as far as I'm concerned, frozen. And there's no possibility of change. But God's mercy is a power that transcends justice. It doesn't contradict it. Justice is essential. But it transcends it. And it gives the possibility of change, of conversion. So this is what God's talking about. He says, if a man turns from his ways, he turns from his wickedness, and he becomes righteous, I'm not going to hold his former sins against him. So God, unlike us sometimes, he doesn't put people in a box and keep them in one place and make them frozen in time. He sees their potential. And it's really the eyes of love that see the potential in others, in every human being. How easy it is to stereotype each other and to put each other into certain categories and to not give each other space or any kind of freedom or any kind of room. Oh, you're like that. And that's how you are. That's how you'll always be. And you just write the person off. And we see this obviously in today's very polarized political uh, environment. And as I said two weeks ago, you know, we've got this, this survey that I saw where it's saying 90% of Republicans are saying Democrats are terrible people, and 90% of Democrats are saying Republicans are terrible people. This is putting each other in boxes. This is not respecting one another as persons who are free to change, but rather as treating one another as kind of like political abstractions, uh, a thing more than a person some kind of bad thing that sits behind the computer screen, you know, and in my Twitter feed or my Facebook posts or whatever you, you might have, okay? I remember when I was teaching, I taught for a number of years up in the Adirondacks, and I was, I was a high school English teacher, 
And if I, I, there's a number of scenarios, and I just found it by experience, a kind of a technique that worked. It just it was functional. It worked as a teacher. But it was rooted in, in deeper moral principles. And I found, whenever I'd come into a new scenario, maybe a special ed teacher would come to me, or uh, the math teacher would come to me, and they would give me dirt on a particular student that I'm going to encounter, that I haven't yet encountered. And they, I want to warn you about Johnny. Let me tell you all the things Johnny has done, okay? And I, I found that it was helpful for me as a teacher to actually stop the person and say, no, I don't want to even hear about his bad past. And uh, I want to, starting with me, give this guy a fresh start and not put him into a box. And now I didn't say that to the person, but I did, I did find it very helpful to actually ignore, just kind of block out of my mind's attention this information about the person, not even listen to it, just kind of ignore it. And what I found is that the student himself or herself would oftentimes like to play this role of the bad student. And uh, there was a pre-written script, so to speak. You're the bad student. I'm the disciplinarian. You know, you, you play your move. Now I play my move. And we weren't free to break out of that script. Ooh. <laughs> well, I've got a loud voice. So I'm just going to continue. And that script, I found, just needed to be set aside and ignored. And I was able to relate to the student fresh. And they were able to relate to me fresh. A certain part of them actually wanted to play the game. They wanted to play that old script. But I found at a deeper level, they were actually very relieved that I was setting them free from the prison of this script. My brothers and sisters, it's so important to set people free, to give them space, to change, to unlock potentials that are not yet seen. This is what we see in our gospel. In our gospel, we've got two different parties. We've got the religious professionals of Jesus' day, and we've got the sinners. Okay, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, who in real, I mean, they were, they did bad things, they had bad habits. We're not saying that's not the case. But the one side of the religious professionals was not giving them any chance to actually change and to be different. And yet John the Baptist comes around and somehow the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the, the sinners, they're very attracted to John the Baptist. Why? Because he didn't put them in a box. Because they sensed with him that they had a fresh start, that they could begin again with him. And so they loved him, and they followed him. They submitted to his baptism of repentance. They changed their lives. Because they sensed the love of God emanating forth from this prophet. And it was a principle of liberation that was there to heal and to cleanse and to make new. And this is what drew them. To John the Baptist. This is what drew them to this great prophet. 
My brothers and sisters, we can't ignore justice. But love is the more fundamental reality by which we have to live our lives. And that's true for individuals. It's true when it comes to our broader community, our country, and the political environment in which we live. I was listening recently to, um, I'm following this one uh, organization it's called Braver Angels. And it's an organization that was set up only just a few years ago. And it was done in response to this polarization phenomenon that we're seeing in our country. And uh, can you imagine, this is what they do. It's a grassroots movement. They get five to seven Democrats and five to seven Republicans together in one room. And they talk about how to communicate with each other. And they learn about each other as persons and their personal backgrounds. And then they discuss some of their differences. And they see, you know, where are you coming from? Help me understand your political views. What's truly good for us as a community? And in all of this, love is being fostered. Love as a positive social principle is being cultivated. As we approach the elections here, November 3rd coming up pretty soon, and we're trying to decide what is the best elected representative for us, we can never forget that the most important office in our constitutional government is the office of citizen. It's you and it's me. It's all of us, whether we are of a particular religious, I'm sorry, of a particular political party, uh, one or the other. And that we cannot do without each other. I really think that's a certain, you can fall, you can find yourself falling into this idea of like, I, we don't need those people. You do need those people. You do actually need those people. We are together fellow citizens engaged in one cooperative democratic process. And it's a team work effort. It's not something that we can do without the other half. And moreover, the, one of the spokesmen for this organization, John Wood is his name, I found one of his talks to be really, well, many of his talks to be engaging, but the one that I found very engaging, that sticks out in my mind, is he talked about love as a positive social principle that needs to be in place, otherwise there's going to be chaos. We can trick ourselves into thinking, okay, I'm over here in my political corner, you're over there in your political corner, ah, you just stay over there and I'll stay here. We don't need to communicate, we don't need to be in communion with each other, and we'll just kind of hold a certain kind of, you know, a peaceful, uh, a cold peace, a neutrality. And guess what? If there's not the positive presence of love, there's not a neutrality. It's going to descend to violence and destruction. That's what's going to happen. If love is not positively present and active, triumphing over justice and differences and so forth and so on, we as Americans will descend into violence and chaos, period. We absolutely, as Christians, as American Christians, need to operate according to that positive social principle, that principle of love.
and thereby we're going to affect that depolarization that needs to take place before we can even begin to listen to each other and find a common way forward. My brothers and sisters, justice, yes, very important. Operate according to justice, but we can never forget that love is the main thing that sets us free and gives us the potential for change, for the better, and true progress as individuals and as a country.